Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 19, Leaving Egypt. Welcome back, everyone, and I hope you all enjoyed our last episode on the sieges of Jaffa, Acre, and the intertwined Battle of Mount Tabor. Today, we're going to be wrapping up the French's failed siege of Acre, follow them back to Egypt, and get ready for General Bonaparte to become, well, first consul Napoleon. Finally. And speaking of which, I did want to clarify one thing that I closed last week's episode with. I mentioned that we were talking about the dying days of the First French Republic, and obviously that was more metaphorical than literal. The Republic would technically live on until Napoleon dissolved it and created his empire. But as we'll see over the next few weeks, the term Republic is going to be quite relative when it comes to the military-style dictatorship that Napoleon is about to install. But again, we'll have plenty of time to talk about that over the following two episodes, because today, we need to conclude Napoleon's time in the Middle East, starting with finishing up the doomed siege of Acre. Despite their victory at the Battle of Montebor, the French were still locked into a precarious situation at Acre. The unseasonably cold weather and muddy terrain outside the city made for a perfect recipe for disease, which soon began to take its toll on the French soldiers, already stretched thin and with dwindling numbers so far away from the headquarters in Cairo. Many of their commanding officers were also not immune, General Caffarelli, one of the most popular officers with his troops, was mortally wounded when a shot to his arm became infected. Generals Lon, Bon, who also died, Eugène, and Gerard Duroc were also wounded. Now, This did gain them additional respect from their troops as they saw their commanding officers suffer alongside them, but it did little to help the attack plans against a determined enemy. And that brings us to the most important part of the French position at Acre, the stubborn resistance by the Ottomans and the British support under Commodore Smith. On May 4th, the French attempted a breakout surprise attack at night, but it was repulsed. With Ottoman relief forces arriving from the Greek island of Rhodes three days later, Napoleon saw the writing on the wall and began contemplation of abandoning the siege. On May 10th, the French would make their deepest inroads into the siege to date by finally breaching through the walls, only to find them reinforced with new ones inside, thanks to assistance from the British engineers. With supplies dwindling, it would be the last of the major assaults on Acre, and the French would quietly retreat back to Egypt ten days later on May 20th, aided by the cover of darkness. Acre was a significant blow to Napoleon's ambitions in the Middle East, obviously, but it proved to be a bigger win for the coalition forces and the local Ottoman population. As diverse as the Ottoman Levant was, they were able to put aside religious, ethnic, and linguistic barriers to fight a common enemy and win. The British, as we've mentioned a few times already now, played a major role in this success, but the majority of the hard fighting and resistance was undertaken by Jazar Pasha's troops. Napoleon tried his best to sway the local Christian population, thinking that he would be able to do so, 
But as we saw last week, the thought of seeing another Jaffa take place at Acre was enough for them to remain loyal to the Ottomans, and Napoleon would lose a critical ally that could have helped sway the momentum in his favor. But that didn't deter Napoleon from seeing the events a little differently. Now, <laughs> I've been told my humor can be a little dry at times, so if no one caught the obvious bit of sarcasm there, I do apologize. Because despite the clear and obvious loss at Acre, Napoleon, ever the propagandist, wrote back to the directory that he had accomplished all he set out to do in Syria. Quote, The end I had in view has been accomplished. My presence is required in Egypt. Having reduced Acre to a heap of stones, I shall recross the desert. He provided further clarification by saying that many of the Ottomans inside the walls were suffering from plague and that any attempt at an assault would prove to be a humanitarian disaster for the French. But this, of course, was a blatant lie, as it was his men who were suffering. But, hey, facts are for those on the ground, not for a bunch of lawyers holed up in the Tuileries. Perhaps even more vainglorious and brazen, though, was his declaration to his own troops, which, honestly, I'm surprised did not revolt right on the spot. A few days more, he told them, and you would have captured the Pasha in the very middle of his palace. But at this season, the capture of Acre would not be worth the loss of some days. Man, the stone's on this guy. But no matter how Napoleon tried to spin it, the news of Acre was beginning to spread all over Europe. And Acre was really the least of the French's problems because when Napoleon bogged down some 1,500 miles away in the Levant, the French were dealing with mounting losses back closer to the home front. General Jordan was suffering defeat after defeat in Germany, and much of what Napoleon had conquered in Italy was now falling back into the hands of the Austrians. Only Genoa remained under French control, and worse yet, the Vendée was beginning to simmer up again. So when I finished up last week saying that these were the dying days of the First French Republic, yeah, well, this is kind of what I was referring to. The Directory, already unpopular with much of the French to begin with, was now beginning to see their power unraveling as the tide of war turned against them. So, while we've spent the last few episodes understandably bogged down in Egypt in the Middle East with Napoleon, I think now is as good a time as any to talk about the events going on in Europe, because they're going to be pretty damn important over the course of this episode and beyond. After Napoleon had defeated the Austrians in Italy, and with the Treaty of Campo Formio formally ending the War of the First Coalition, the two main belligerents of the conflict remain highly suspicious of one another. France, Confident following her unexpected victory in the war, demanded more territory from the Austrians, who were hesitant to even hand over their previously promised territories, let alone additional ones. Furthermore, the Austrians were unable to provide a suitable solution regarding compensation to the numerous German princes that were now all of a sudden under French rule, which further inflamed tensions among France's newest subjects. The Italian states, again deeply Catholic and resistant to French control, became difficult to administer without sufficient French forces, whose best men would soon be on their way to Egypt to disrupt British trade. And as we mentioned last week, when the French arrived in Malta at the start of the Egyptian campaign, it brought an angry Russia into the fold, as Tsar Paul was the protector of the Knights of Malta. So by the summer of 1798, not even a year after the signing of Campo Formio, it appeared that war would start back up again on the continent after the coalition forces decided to come together once again. But like many of the coalitions that would band against France and Napoleon before and in the upcoming years, these allies were all skeptical of each other, 
brought together more out of a hatred of the French Revolution rather than of an honor-bound sense of loyalty to one another. The British were always suspicious of the Habsburgs, who were still deeply in debt to Britain from the previous war and would now be requesting more money from the British to subsidize resumption of hostilities with France. Neither the British nor the Austrians would formalize an official alliance with one another during the War of the Second Coalition as a consequence. Rather, they would only work together on an ad hoc basis in coordinating their mutual interests. The Russians and Ottomans, meanwhile, put aside centuries of enmity in order to repel the French, but they never did so under any semblance of mutual trust. No coalition powers were able to persuade Prussia to join, despite the heavy recruiting by both Austria and Britain. But nevertheless, by November of 1798, the entire Second Coalition was formed, with Austria and Britain joined by Russia, the Ottoman Empire, Naples, and Portugal. But France, for their part, knew that the Campo Formio peace would likely be tentative at best, despite the celebration the victory caused. Military planners back in Paris understood that the Upper Rhine, southwest German territories, and Switzerland were of critical strategic importance in order to defend the French frontier. Switzerland controlled the Alpine passes into Italy, the Rhine Valley controlled direct access into France's heartland, and the southern German states provided a pathway to the southern French coast's access to the Mediterranean. The French War Council thus ordered General Jourdan to move into Germany, securing strategic positions there to repel an attack from the Austrians. General Massena would hold positions in Switzerland to prevent advances to and from Italy, while a northern army would be sent to the northern provinces in the Netherlands to repel any British invasions which were expected. Again, though, that many of France's best soldiers and commanders were with Napoleon on their way to Egypt gave the coalition confidence that they would be able to retake lost territory for much of the previous six years. And initially, they were correct. Led by Russian General Alexander Suvorov, considered by many to be one of Russia's and the world's greatest military commanders, the coalition forces were able to retake much of the lost territory in Italy, driving the French back over to the Alps. And as I mentioned earlier, Jordan was defeated in the Rhine, suffering significant losses at the Battle of Austria and the Battle of Stockick, which forced the French out of the region and forced Jordan back to Paris for quote-unquote medical leave. But the coalition forces would be less successful in the Netherlands, where a joint Russo-British invasion was repulsed in November of 1799, and in Switzerland, where Massena was able to inflict a decisive victory in the Second Battle of Zurich in September against the Russians, defeating Suvorov and forcing them out of the coalition, while also further enhancing his resume as one of France's finest military commanders. And while much of this is a general oversimplification of the opening salvos of the War of the Second Coalition, it does give us an idea of what was going on back in Europe as Napoleon reluctantly retreated from Acre back to Egypt. But we're going to leave it here because we'll have plenty of time to delve into what else was going on back in France next week in more detail, because while all of those events were occurring simultaneously, Napoleon was trudging his way back to Cairo. But as major as the events in Europe were, Napoleon was hardly aware of them. The British blockade had prevented much of the newspapers in Europe from reaching Napoleon directly, so he was unable to read about the fact that much of the French frontier was on the verge of coalition invasion. But, as they say, timing is everything. We'll get to that a little bit later on in this episode, because Napoleon, while retreating, still had to make it back to Egypt, while under constant threat from raiders on his return journey. 
Now, Napoleon may have been a master propagandist to those hundreds of miles away, but with himself, he understood the failure he had just suffered. Despite the fact that the Siege of Acre was his third tactical defeat in the field, the battles of Bassano, the second one, and Caldiero were hardly noteworthy as the campaign ended in spectacular victory. Acker, on the other hand, was a different story entirely. It prevented his long-held dream of becoming the next Alexander, and it would be a battle and campaign he would regret for the remainder of his life. He later wrote that, quote, I would have founded a religion. I saw myself marching to Asia, mounted on an elephant, a turban on my head, and in my hand a new Quran that I would have composed to suit my needs. Writing to his younger brother Lucian years later, he said, quote, I missed my destiny at Acre. Well, I guess we'll see about that one. Retreating from Acre, Napoleon began a policy of scorched earth to prevent the Ottomans from catching up with him, laying waste to much of the villages and towns he passed through. He ordered anyone who was able to dismount their horses to allow the sick and wounded to ride them, even whipping one of the equerries at one point when he asked Napoleon which horse the general would mount. It was one of the few times Napoleon would himself use physical violence against his own men, and it further demonstrated the anger he felt towards the disaster that was Acre. But the sick did present a dilemma for Napoleon. It would have been impossible to cross the desert with them and make it back to Egypt without running into the Ottoman relief force. And as a result, with the French taking a short respite back in Jaffa, Napoleon made the difficult decision to leave the sick French soldiers in Jaffa under the auspices that they would be assured of their safety and return via ship. But this assurance was a calculated move by Napoleon to poison them with opium, knowing that once the Ottomans arrived, that they would have been slaughtered regardless. And similarly, even had they somehow managed to get on the ships, the risk of bringing back plague to France was too great, even for 18th, almost 19th century's health standards. So, Napoleon had the local apothecaries lace the food with laudanum and watched as as many as 50 men fell peacefully asleep, never to wake up. And though it was a difficult decision, Napoleon later defended his actions and basically doubled down on them. Quote, Nor would any man under similar circumstances who had the free use of his senses have hesitated to prefer dying easily a few hours soon than to expire under the tortures of those barbarians. When word reached coalition forces that Napoleon had ordered his men poisoned to avoid such a fate as falling into the enemy hands, he further stated, quote, Do you think that if I had been capable of secretly poisoning my soldiers or of such barbarities as to have been ascribed to me, of driving my carriage over the mutilated and bleeding bodies of the wounded, that my troops would have fought under me with the enthusiasm and affection they uniformly displayed? No, no. I should have been shot long ago. Even my wounded would have tried to pull a trigger to dispatch of me. Indeed, regardless of how many have come to view Napoleon, it is likely that his decision was one of humanity rather than of logistical convenience. There is little doubt that any Frenchman in Ottoman hands by that point, especially in Jaffa, would not have been tortured, mutilated, and then murdered. Better a painless, peaceful death than one of unfathomable suffering. And one of his aides-de-camps conceded as much, essentially saying that those that Napoleon did order killed were beyond healing anyway. This, then, was a far more dignified way to go out. 
And it's not like they probably would have survived much longer anyway. As the French train left Jaffa, they once again needed to march through the desert as May turned into June. With Napoleon reporting some days as hot as 47 degrees Celsius, or about 117 degrees Fahrenheit, men were exhausted, horses were unable to keep the endurance displayed by the camels, and some soldiers even committed suicide rather than continue the 11-mile-a-day march through the searing sand. Napoleon ordered his men to clean the countryside of any livestock, crops, and water that they could find from the locals, all while destroying any homes of those who refused. He spared only those who pledged to remain loyal to the French, though there was little way of him being able to enforce such an oath. There really was no other way around it. The French were in a desperate situation, and by the time they reached Cairo on June 14, 1799, after four months away on campaign in the Levant, Napoleon's men suffered nearly 2,000 wounded, 1,200 killed in action, and over 600 dead to the plague and other diseases. With nearly 4,000 casualties out of an army of 13,000, it was a miracle Napoleon survived, let alone maintained his command. And if you read any of the British newspapers that summer, you likely would have thought as much. Because with the news of Napoleon's setbacks now beginning to trickle throughout Europe, the British made quick work on their propaganda blitz to further crush French morale in their campaigns throughout the continent. They stated that much of the expeditionary force was completely destroyed and that Napoleon himself was killed in Syria. Napoleon received word of the rumors as he approached Cairo and, insulted, decided to quickly dispel any notion of his demise. He entered Cairo as if he were at the head of a triumphal army with soldiers carrying palms, victory emblems, and playing revolutionary hymns. It must have been quite the scene, especially since many of the soldiers, as Dugaro later wrote of the event, quote, lacked everything. Most of us were without hats or boots. Many of Cairo's sheiks came out to greet Napoleon on his, quote, successful campaign, and Napoleon later declared to the crowds, quote, he is back in Cairo, the bien God the head of the French army, General Bonaparte, who loves Muhammad's religion. He is back sound and well, thanking God for the favors he has given him. He has entered Cairo by the gate of victory. This day is a great day. No one has ever seen what it's like. All of the inhabitants of Cairo have come out to meet him. They have seen and recognized that it is the same commander-in-chief, Bonaparte, in his own person. But those of Jaffa, having refused to surrender, he handed them all over to pillage and death in his anger. He has destroyed all of its ramparts and killed all those found there. There were about 5,000 of Jazar's troops in Jaffa. He destroyed them all. But we all know this was a lie. Napoleon knew it was a lie. He wasn't the head of a triumphal army. He was the head of a battered expeditionary force that was nearing its mental and physical limit, likely only tempered by the fact that after four and a half grueling weeks of trekking throughout the desert, that they were now finally able to rest and drink some water. But they couldn't hide from the fact that nearly a third of their comrades were casualties in a lost campaign, no matter how Napoleon tried to spin it back to the directory. He wrote to them, stating that he only suffered 1,500 casualties. They also couldn't hide the fact that they were now back in the Egyptian capital. While the French arrival in Cairo did allow for some time of respite and resupply, the Ottomans under Mirrored Bay were rumored to have been approaching the Lower Egypt, and the long-awaited amphibious Ottoman invasion force was quickly approaching Alexandria. 
Napoleon first marched on to Giza to meet Bay's forces, and it was here that he's famously depicted gazing upon the partially buried Sphinx in the 1868 painting by Jean-Léon Jérôme Bonaparte before the Sphinx, which is also the cover art for this week's episode. The painting is housed at the Hearst Castle in San Simeon, California, and is paired side-by-side side with the painting, also by Jérôme, of Bonaparte in Cairo, this time featuring Napoleon gazing over the Egyptian capital. While in Giza, Napoleon received word of the arriving Ottoman fleet, and, leaving his generals to fend off Bay, he began his advance on Alexandria. Without stopping in Cairo, Napoleon wrote to the city's divan, stating, quote, Eighty ships have dared to attack Alexandria, but, beaten back by the artillery in that place, they have gone to anchor in Abakir Bay, where they began disembarking troops. I leave them to do this, since my intention is to attack them, to kill all those who do not wish to surrender, and to leave others alive to be led in triumph to Cairo. This will be a handsome spectacle for the city. Napoleon also wrote of his belief that the Ottoman force would be supported by the heathen Russians, likely done to help persuade the Muslim population of Cairo to his aid, but to at best dubious effect. In reality, the fleet was composed of Ottoman forces made up of Turkish, Mamluk, and Bedouin soldiers. Regardless of who and what the soldiers were, though, Napoleon was determined to meet them head-on in Alexandria and make up for his defeat at their hands in Acre, as well as reassert French control and an honor in Egypt. Yet despite being outmanned again, Napoleon would do just that in one of the great victories for the French in the Egyptian campaign, the Battle of Abakir Bay. Now, we've already gone through the geography of Abakir Bay during our Battle of the Nile episode, which I guess technically should be called the Battle of Abakir Bay number one. So please do go back and listen to that if you need a refresher for a more detailed description. But as a quick reminder, Abakir is a small peninsular bay jetting out of the Egyptian coastline just northwest of Alexandria, occupying a strategic point between Alexandria and Rosetta. Thus, Holding the bay was of critical importance in transportation of supplies between the two towns, as well as providing a substantial beachhead from which to launch an invasion, which we saw the French do just over a year before, having a direct route to Cairo. On July 14, 1799, a fleet of 60 British ships landed at Abakir Bay, with between 12,000 and 20,000 men under the command of Mustafa Pasha, a veteran of the previous Russo-Turkish War. Now, the vastly superior numbers overwhelmed the small French garrison in the city of 300 men, slaughtering them all and then capturing the fortress of Abakir. Within three days, the city was pacified and the Ottoman flags flew throughout the bay. But Mustafa, now gloating in his quick victory, made the critical error of not continuing the advance on Cairo, which gave the French time to gather a relief force. Murad Bey, prior to his incursions with Napoleon at Giza, met up with Mustafa in Alexandria and told him, quote, Pasha, be glad that it suits the French to withdraw, because if they turned, you would disappear before them like dust before the north wind. How right he would soon turn out to be. When Napoleon received word of the landings from Marmont, he sent word to Cairo to gather every available man to join the march on Alexandria. He ordered Murat to halt his pursuit of Bay and to converge on Damanure, about 40 miles south of Abicur, to be joined with Clébert, both to ensure the southern flank. Napoleon then sent Daché down the Nile to prevent an Ottoman march onto Cairo, essentially acting as a final line of defense there. 
Marmont was ordered to remain in Alexandria with his small garrison and hold off any Ottoman attacks until Napoleon's force could arrive to relieve them. Napoleon then sent out to Damanor with nearly every soldier fit to fight in Cairo, where they would meet up with Mehra's cavalry to begin their attack on Pasha's force. In all, Napoleon was supported by around 10,000 infantry and over 1,000 cavalry under the command of Mehra. But when Napoleon was informed that it was Mustafa Pasha who would be commanding the land forces, he actually reassessed his plan of attack. Pasha, as we mentioned earlier, had fought against European armies in the Russo-Ottoman War, and thus he would not be the lightweight the Mamluks were in prior battles. Indeed, Pasha, his overconfidence notwithstanding, had studied Napoleon's battle tactics closely, and he employed two strong defensive lines along the peninsula in order to offset the threat posed by Napoleon's patented squares. This meant that the French would need to attack the Ottoman force head-on. But there was a critical error in Pasha's strategy. Their backs were against the open sea, preventing any possible escape route in the event of a breakout. Pasha, though, was confident that his lines would be able to hold the inferior French numbers. He would soon be proven wrong. After camping on the night of the 24th in Alexandria, which was actually where the battle took place, though the French, in an attempt at avenging their previous loss at Abakir Bay, decided to name it as such, Napoleon ordered the attack to begin on the morning of July 25th. On the left flank for the French was an infantry division under the command of General François Lanus, while Lan commanded the right. Napoleon placed Mirat's cavalry in the vanguard to help concentrate their attack on the center, allowing both flanks to wrap around the defensive line and swarm them. Because of the manpower advantage for the Ottomans, the French knew the difficult fighting lay ahead. But the Ottomans again made the critical error of not finishing their fortifications on their right flank, that is, the flank facing the French left under Lanus's command, and Lanus decided to take advantage by ordering his men to swing around. After intense fighting, Lanus's division had made the complete turn and surrounded the Turkish left flank, the side originally facing Lan, causing immediate panic among the Ottomans' first defensive line, and many attempted to retreat. Without anywhere to go, Pasha's critical error of having the ocean be their rear came home to roost. Nearly all of the Ottoman left flank bailed into the water, most of them drowning, attempting to swim back to the British ships. Even Napoleon, fresh off of slaughtering nearly everyone he could in Jaffa only months earlier, was horrified, later stating, quote, The enemy threw themselves into the water in an attempt to reach the boats, which were more than two miles out at sea. They all drowned, the most horrible sight I've seen. But this only enraged many of the Ottomans on the second defensive line, many of whom watched as their countrymen died slowly in the rough waters offshore. The French then attempted another breakout on the second line, but were repulsed by the Ottoman numbers in supporting British cannon fire. Many of the Ottomans began to advance, decapitating the French dead as they moved forward in retaliation. But this maneuver only slowed their advance and allowed the French to take advantage of the lull. Napoleon ordered his cannons to be moved further uphill to help bombard the Ottoman right flank, which then made the Ottomans move their right flank further inland. But this squeezed their lines closer together, creating a gap in the lines that could be exploited. And Murat, taking quick notice of this, decided to take the initiative and ordered a cavalry charge at the scattered Turks who were mutilating the French dead, basically buying time for a French counterattack. Murat's charge caused additional panic, which reached all the way back to the Ottoman rear and allowed Murat to penetrate so deeply into the line that he actually arrived at Pasha's tent. Pasha, 
stunned at seeing the French general literally feet from him, took a pistol and shot Murat in the jaw, wounding him. Murat then swung his sword at Pasha, cutting off two of his fingers and forcing him to surrender. He then ordered his men to seize him, capturing the Ottoman general. Further chaos ensued around them, though, and more and more Ottomans retreated to the ocean to try and escape, but they, like those in the first line, also drowned. Sir Sidney Smith, commanding the supporting British fire from the bay, could only watch as his invasion force was sent to the bottom of the deep below. Despite the Ottomans holding out for an additional week, the Battle of Abukir was over that day. The French suffered only 220 dead and 600 wounded, while the Ottoman losses were astounding. 2,000 killed in action, 11,000 drowned, and 5,000 prisoners of war. Napoleon would later claim that, quote, of the enemy who came ashore, not a single one escaped. This was obviously not true. Many Ottomans did indeed survive, and the British sent rescue boats to help retrieve some of the drowning men, including one Muhammad Ali, who would go on to be known as the founder of modern Egypt less than 10 years later. But the results just could not be disputed. Smith later wrote to Admiral Nelson of the loss, further widening the sour relationship both men shared towards each other, though fear not because this will not be the last time that we will hear of Smith or, of course, of Nelson. The victory was a major one for the French, preventing the large-scale Ottoman invasion that Napoleon had long feared and bought them the time that they needed on what to do next. But this victory was major for another reason. It gave Napoleon, really for the first time since the Battle of the Nile, news of what was going on in Europe. Commodore Smith even presented to the French envoy a summons written by the Directory for Napoleon requesting his return to Paris. Napoleon read newspapers from months earlier, learning that most of the Italian possessions he had conquered only two years prior were now back in coalition control. And with France under direct attack on all fronts from the Second Coalition, Napoleon made the fateful decision to return to France, a decision that would change the course of world history. Napoleon has at times been accused of cowardice for his decision to return to France, and many of the commanding officers he left behind to command the Egyptian campaign pulled few punches when addressing his departure. Clébert later stated, quote, That bugger has deserted us with his britches full of shit. When we get back to Europe, we'll rub his face in it. Clébert, however, would not get the chance. He died of stab wounds while still in Egypt the following year. But nevertheless, Napoleon's mind was made up. He would cross the British-infested waters of the Mediterranean and go to Paris to settle the situation in France once and for all. On August 23, 1799, at 8 a.m., without warning, Napoleon boarded the small frigate Miron with Berthier, Murat, Lan, and several savants and began his journey back to France. Napoleon would also take a Mamluk slave named Ustam Raza, who would become his personal bodyguard for the next 15 years. He left command to Clébert, sending him to nearby Rosetta as a ruse so that he could escape in secret. And thanks in part to favorable winds, the small fleet was undetected by the British patrolling the sea. And by the end of September, Napoleon arrived in his home island of Corsica to jubilant crowds in Ajaccio. Cannons saluted as they disembarked, and it was reported that Napoleon was visibly emotional at the sight of adornment displayed by his countrymen. He was briefed on the situation back in Paris, gathered supplies and money, and left after two and a half weeks in Corsica. The emotion he displayed was fitting, 
It would be the last time in his life that he would set foot on the island that bore the world one of its greatest military minds. Avoiding further capture by the British despite a few close calls, Napoleon arrived at the port of Fujus near Khan at noon on Wednesday, October 9, 1799, after nearly a month and a half at sea. Despite a warm reception from the locals, Napoleon wasted no time. That evening, he would be on a carriage train to the capital. Nearly a year and a half away from home in a different world, Napoleon was only weeks away from becoming absolute ruler of France. Napoleon's time in Egypt was unquestionably a military failure. He had set about to become the modern-day Alexander and conquer India, and he didn't even reach modern-day Syria. He set about to build a new canal of the pharaohs and had nearly drowned trying to cross the Red Sea. He had set out to disrupt British trade and cripple their economy while establishing a permanent presence in the Mediterranean, only to see the greatest friendship of her day blown into the depths of Abiquiu Bay at the hands of one of his greatest military adversaries. So why, then, is Napoleon's Egyptian expedition so famous in the collective historical consciousness if it was, objectively, a failure? The answer to this is not the military legacy, but the scientific and cultural impact that the expedition left behind. Much of the Egyptology that has fascinated modern Western society was a direct result of the research undertaken by Napoleon's savants brought along for the journey. Only days before their victory at the Battle of Abukir, the French, fortifying the defenses at Fort Julien near Rosetta, found a slab with inscriptions. This slab turned out to be the famous Rosetta Stone, an indispensable piece used by later archaeologists in deciphering ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, which to that point in history had confounded scientists. The stone, written in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, Demotic script, and ancient Greek, provided the same decree in all three languages on behalf of King Ptolemy V, the latter of which was well known and allowed for the full translation of the other languages on the stone. The discovery of mummified animals were drawn and sent back to Europe, allowing much of the continent to see the splendors of the rich cultural history of Egypt. Furthermore, the printing press introduced by the French to the Middle East greatly increased the spread of information throughout the region, greatly modernizing the school of thought amongst the population, though this view, along with the expedition in its entirety, of course, can be seen as examples of modern European colonialism. And given many of Napoleon's actions on the local population, it's honestly quite difficult to argue with this view. However you look at it, though, much of what we know about ancient Egypt today is owed in part to Napoleon's expedition there in the latter years of the 18th century. Oh, almost forgot. And much of the Egyptian art we see in modern museums is also owed to the expedition. You know, much of the Egyptian art that's not actually in uh, Egypt. And that's where we will leave Napoleon today. As for the remainder of the French army in Egypt, they would remain there for another two years, finally surrendering to the joint British-Ottoman forces in September of 1801. After Napoleon left, the situation became impossible to maintain. Kleber was able to score a few additional victories, but after his death, command fell to Menu, who proved a poor commander, losing the critical Battle of Canopus in March of 1801. After their surrender, the British returned the French soldiers to France in British ships, but the greater effect was that the British were able to keep their critical supply routes to India intact. It was a valiant effort by the French, but it ended in utter failure. 
But we'll return to Egypt sporadically throughout the rest of the series because 1801 is still a ways off. Because right now, we're still in the throes of 1799. And next week, Napoleon would ensure that the last days of the 18th century would be ones for the ages, as he and a group of conspirators would come together to end the debacle that was the Directory once and for all. Because next week, it's time, finally, to talk about the coup of 18 Brumaire.